Welcome to the New Vision Church podcast. New Vision Church is a diverse, Bible-teaching, Jesus-centered church in San Diego, California, and exists to transform people and their communities by replicating followers of the biblical Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Now here's this week's Praise sermon. Praise Lord Church. How's everybody doing tonight? It's good to be together in God's house. My name is Pastor Nate Landis, if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet. I'm excited to be a part of a church that has so much going on in the community, aren't you? That we're not just about information downloading into your brain or into your phone, but we're about transformation, putting it to work and going out to seek and save the lost and make disciples of all people here in our city and all around the world. We've been going through the fat life, which is looking at Philippians, and tonight we're in chapter two. And as we look at chapter two, I have a question for everybody here. Has anyone ever received an offer that you just knew because you saw it and the way it hit you and, and by using common sense and, and logic and maybe your life experiences that it was just way too good to be true? Sometimes you, you read it and you're like, man, if it's that easy and that quick and that big, I think they're hustling me. And I actually got one of these recently because I run a nonprofit that partners with New Vision. I'm one of the pastors here, and I also run Urban Youth Collaborative. We're a group of 135 churches that do outreach Bible clubs at 100 different schools right here in this neighborhood and throughout the county. And I'm always having to raise funds to put God's mission into the lives of others. So anytime I get an email or a notice about a potential donation, it gets my attention. I've got 25 staff to raise funds for. We've got to do a lot of pizzas and, and all of that. And I got this one email, though, that maybe you've gotten one like it, too, where it just seemed a little too good to be true. It was, it, it, there's, they start kind of two ways. One is like a Nigerian prince who's traveling internationally and needs a conduit of a certain charity to give $45 million to. And if I am willing to send my bank account information, then he is willing to give me 10% of the transaction, which would be $4.5 million. That would set us up for a while. It was a little attractive, but it was way too good to be true. I got another similar one. They must have a template for these. And this one was from a dying widow. Have you seen this one before? It's like, I have an inheritance. I'm in uh, London usually, and I've got millions and millions of dollars, and I've died with, I'm, I'm about to die with no heirs, or it's the executor of the, state, the estate, and she's just died with no heirs, and she's looking for someone who'll send their information, and then for the transaction fee of 10%, I would theoretically receive the money, and then I would give it away. But all of us know that if I would provide our charity's account information, which way would the funds go? They would go out of Urban Youth Collaborative into whatever hustle this was that they were running. And if you've been burned before, you start to develop a defense mechanism for stuff like this. If you've got good street instincts, you might actually pride yourself in not being taken advantage of easily. It's not your rookie season anymore. So it's like, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. But that same attitude sometimes gets us into trouble when it's responding to the good news and the promises and the claims of Jesus because those are so good that they sound like they can't be true. And so the second chapter of Philippians is setting us up to look at God's character, not the character of a hustler, but a character of someone who loves us more than we can love ourselves. That's what we just sang about. And he's got more power than anyone else in the universe. He's got more wealth than anyone else in the universe because he owns everything already. Anything in your pocket, you're a steward. If you're a believer, it comes from God. It's on loan. Those kids at your house aren't yours. They're on loan from God. Those gifts in your body that you've developed over time, those don't belong to you. They're on loan from God. Not in an arrogant way. Rush Limbaugh used to say, I have talent on loan from God. He was right, but he was using it for his own might and glory. We've got talent on loan from God because it's supposed to be used for the owner's purposes. It's supposed to be used for the owner's agenda. One author says that us using the stuff God's entrusted with us for our own agenda is sort of like the FedEx guy. Instead of delivering all the packages, 
It's like him taking them home at night and piling them up and unwrapping them and using them for his kids. His role is delivery, not ownership. And we can get that wrong if we don't understand what humility is all about. That's what we're talking about tonight in this series. A fat life is a humble life, and that's actually the best life. They don't make too many rap videos about humility, by the way. <laughs> money, 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 cars, 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 me, 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 I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Repeat. Like, that's the theme. That's the template for most rap videos. Then you work in a little weed, you work in a little record deal, and, and, and repeat over and over. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, whenever Dr. Jekyll turned into Mr. Hyde, we kind of envision that he got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and more powerful. But in the book, if you actually read it, he gets smaller and smaller and shrinks when he turns into Mr. Hyde. He's actually getting smaller when he's only focusing on himself. Humility actually makes us bigger because it connects us not with ourselves, but with a bigger purpose and a bigger plan from the bigger God that put it in us. And we were supposed to deliver it to the world. That's the essence of what true humility looks like. And that's what Paul's getting at in chapter two of Philippians. And if you're flipping through Philippians, like you're flipping through Netflix and you see the word therefore, which is the very, in the King James version, which is what I'm going to read, the new King James, know these and thou's but a good text-to-English translation. The first word is therefore. So if you get to a therefore, it's important to stop and look and figure out what the therefore is. Therefore. So it's just like net, no Netflix episode starts without recapping where they took you before. In the last saga, we saw, and, then, and it goes through whatever Avenger movie or whatever... Uh, heroine or villain was, was active before and what had happened. And we have to flip back in Philippians and look at why Paul is telling us that the offer we're about to read about appears too good to be true. So he's pleading with us not to treat it like the hustles that we've seen around us. Because he's the only one, God's the only lover of our souls that will never leave us or forsake us. He'll never have intimacy with us that leaves us wanting or empty the day after, the moment after, or the minute after. He's the one that we actually are hoping for, and he's saying, I'm real. The desire I put in you isn't to taunt you, but it's to fulfill you through the right course of action, which is walking humbly with me. That's what he's about. So I'm going to give you the Nate's International paraphrase of chapter one very quickly. This is the highlight reel to get us ready for chapter two. Paul talks about how he's thankful for the partnership of the Philippians from the first day of the gospel until today. If we look back and you read the book of Acts, Paul had to walk out of the city of Philippi when he first got there because there wasn't a synagogue when he first arrived. There, there weren't 10 men, it takes 10 men, they were patriarchal back in that day, to set up a synagogue. When he first arrived in Acts, he had to walk out to a river. You can read that in Acts 16. And he found a group of women that were talking about the things of God, and he shared the gospel, and a couple of them repented. That's where the church started. And he's saying, I'm so excited to see the growth from where we started to where we are today. I was thinking about New Vision this week, and, and I remember starting the church with Pastor Pete in his living room and backyard. And I look back and go, I enjoyed those days when we beat the snot out of the kitchen. And there's still like, I think there's still missing grass in the front yard because of the goat path of all the people going through. But, but it's, there's a sense of thankfulness that comes up in us and gratitude for the partnership in the gospel that goes all the way back to the very beginning. And Paul's reflecting on that. Now there's a church in Philippi that can get a letter from him. And he's saying, I'm thankful for what you've done. Then he says this, he says, even when we suffer, we advance the cause of Christ. The devil's offer is this, play now, pay later. Pleasure now, he doesn't tell you about pain later. Jesus often says, suffer now, joy later. Follow the cross now, resurrection later. And the joy that Jesus offers is eternal and profound. He does settle some stuff here, but ultimately all accounts are settled on that day when Jesus comes back and makes everything right. And Paul's focused on that day. Martin Luther said there's only two days that should matter to a Christian. Today 
and that day. And everything else we do in between, every step and every word and every thought and every syllable and every interaction, every relationship ought to be measured today against what's going to matter and what's not going to be worth anything on that day. And Paul talks about that all through Philippians. You hear that day, that it's on his mind, that day, that day, it's coming. The Bible says a lot of people are going to scoff. A lot of people are going to say, he's never coming back. If he was this powerful and this good, why is he letting all the violence happening in our neighborhoods? Why is he letting all the division in our streets? Why is he letting poverty and divorce and why is Justin Timberlake allowed to sing at Super Bowls? There's like all these injustices in the world that just don't make sense for us. And we're saying, God, why? And Jesus is saying, stay humble and don't give up because on that day, I have counted everything. He can count the hairs on our head. And the older I get, it's easier to keep track. It's not funny either. He counts our tears in a bottle, the Bible says. Our tears of joy and our tears of pain. I think we pour those out to water the seeds of his word in our life as he uses our brokenness to produce fruit that lasts forever. So Paul's saying, when you suffer, there's fruit. When you suffer, there's purpose. When you suffer, it's not aimless. I'm not wasting suffering. I haven't lost track of you. I see you. And I count your tears. I know your dreams. I know your prayers. And I know the plan I have for you, says the Lord. To prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. Spoken during a time of devastation for Israel. Do we trust him enough? So Paul's saying, I'm chained up next to a Roman soldier. And guess what? Now everybody in that regiment has heard about Jesus. You can't take Paul somewhere and have him not share the gospel. That's what I like about Paul. You chain him up. He's like, he's not saying, man, God, how come you made me sit with the Romans? I don't get any deodorant. I don't have Wi-Fi in this prison. And I'm, and I'm persecuted. I've, all I've done is serve you and you've locked me up. And instead, he's able to see God's divine purpose for every place that he ends up. Joseph first had to go to Egypt before he was elevated to the top of the Egyptian hierarchy. He had to suffer as a slave. In in Psalm 155, it says his ankles had to be bruised from shackles first. His wrists were bound. They put an iron chain around his neck, but God was sending him there to prepare a way for the Israelites to survive a famine. Isn't that interesting that suffering is part of God's plan for us? In American-style Christianity, when we suffer, we assume we've heard wrong. When we suffer, we assume, well, I must be on the wrong path because all I read is the Best Life Now God books instead of the Friday Before Sunday books. Yes, we want life to the fullest, but we can't have the promised land without the wilderness. We don't get the resurrection without the cross. We don't get full disclosure of the plan until we've suffered first. And we have to be humble enough to trust God's narrative being played out in our lives. God's trajectory. We think we want to get from point A to point B, and we envision it like that, right? (laughs) Point A to point B is usually lots of ups and downs, twists and turns, bumps, spirals downward, and then inevitably he's going to take us to where we're going to go. If you ever look at a patchwork quilt or you look at a stitched piece of art and you flip it around, it's just a snarled bunch of yarn. It makes no sense. There's knots, there's pulled string, there's stuff. You can't even see it. And you have to flip it around to see the purpose of all those strings and all those stitches and all those needle pokes. And when we get to heaven, I'm excited for that. I'm excited to put the night vision goggles of spiritual perfection and discernment on, and I'll be able to see why I went through everything that I went through. Especially there's a few clips in my life where I'm like, God, you got to show me what was going on there. Oh, but it's coming. We've got to trust that our suffering is not wasted. 
are suffering for Christ. In this world, if we're without Christ, we're going to suffer too. You might as well have some eternal purpose for your suffering. You know why they spank you as soon as you come out of the womb? It's to make sure you'll fit in. Because life is hard. Oh, this kid ain't crying. I don't know about this. This might not work out. There's 9 billion other people out here and we know how to cry. Suffering's going to happen. But wouldn't it be great if we could have the humble conviction of Paul that our suffering is not wasted? That we actually get paid a return on our suffering. Some of you might work a job where you turn in a time card. But isn't it cool that God actually rewards you when you punch in with your tears and your prayers and the times when you shared the gospel and the times you were made fun of, the times you were overlooked, the times you were ridiculed, the times you were excluded, the times when you trusted him when you didn't know what the plan was? Ching. He rewards the humble. He exalts the humble, ultimately in eternity. But sometimes he gives us a snapshot here so we can make it. We all need a little bit of a preview of what's to come. So then here's the wild thing. Paul says, you win or you win. If you, if Paul says, some people preach Christ out of rivalry with me. Some people preach Christ sincerely. He says, I rejoice because Christ is preached. And whether they do it for their own aggrandizement or whether they're doing it sincerely because they care about others, I'm excited because the gospel's going out because actually the power of that seed does not change from the insincerity of the seed sower. Isn't that interesting? Because it's really about the faith of the soil that it lands in more than it is the insincerity of the preacher. Do we need to have integrity as preachers? Yes. Do we need to have the sermon on humility? Yes. We'll be even more effective. But Paul says, I rejoice because Christ is preached. And then here's the wild part. He says this, he says that if I can depart and be with Christ, it's better by far. This is verse 19 through 26. He says, I'll be in Christ's presence. I'll be fulfilled. I'll be loved. I'll be without pain and tears. He said, but if I remain in the body, it'll be fruitful labor for me. I'll still get to punch in more. I'll still get to share Christ more. There might be more people in heaven if I stay on earth for a while. Wouldn't that be a great sense of mission and purpose for going to work every day? When I was in seminary, I was supported by a family that wrote a check to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary for 15 MDiv students to go to seminary to train in the ministry. And I got to go to their house and say thank you. It was like one of my first ever donor thank you moments. And we were all like almost bowing down to them. We were new in the faith. It was early on. And they were, they were just so generous and we were so grateful. But they flipped it around and they said, thank you. It's like, no, no, we came to thank you. We even brought you tile from the roof and the steeple of our seminary. And they said, no, I'm doing what God's assigned me to do so that you can do what God's assigned you to do. He said, he, he was one of the top 40 under 40 entrepreneurs in the greater Boston area. And he was set for life. His wife told me that he came home after a really stressful day and he said, you know, honey, what if I just retired because our money's working for us. I won't have to work anymore. We could relax and take it easy. And then he stopped himself and he said, but what about all the Gordon Conwell Seminary students that we're funding? Who would invest in them? And he said, what about the 40 villages of compassion kids that we have? Not compassion kids, 40 villages of compassion kids. He said, who would support them if I retired? And then he goes, maybe I will go to work tomorrow. Because it's fruitful labor for him because he sees lives changed by the work that he does. That's why Paul's staying unretired. Paul's unretired from eternity because he sees lives change every day when he wakes up puts on his sneakers, and stands on the ground, lives are going to change because Christ is in him, and he's humbly fulfilling his mission. Do you have that kind of attitude when you wake up in the morning? I'm going to survive. I'm going to just make it through, trying to face another day. Or are you able to wake up with a sense of dedication and mission and passion and clarity in your calling to know that you're on earth now for a reason? 
or else you'd be with him already. That's the power of a humble focus on Christ. Last thing he says before we get to chapter two, and this won't be a four-hour binge sermon, don't worry. But I wanted us to have the therefore background because some of us weren't here for the other sermons before this. So check this out. Paul says this, if you're persecuted, it's for your own good and it shows that you're one of my follow- what, you're one of Christ's followers. Is that your attitude when you're persecuted? I usually go, man, I, I did something wrong. I got persecuted. I wasn't savvy and collegial enough. I wasn't open-minded enough. I wasn't uh, adding enough value to this person's life or organization. And we shouldn't be persecuted for avoidable offenses. We should be persecuted for the unavoidable offense of Christ. Some of us are just jerks and we consider it a badge of honor when somebody persecutes us. It's like, well, you might be persecuted because you're just a jerk. But there's other times when you're loving and you're faithful and you're doing everything you can and the unavoidable offense of Christ is still there. And Paul says, you actually are affirmed and validated in your status as a disciple if you're persecuted. One preacher from England once said that everywhere Paul went to speak, a riot broke out. He says, what's wrong with me? Because everywhere I go, all they do is serve tea afterwards. Everywhere I go, I get an honorarium afterwards. They give me a check and say thanks. And I wonder sometimes, am I, am I creating the right amount of discomfort for the comforted and the right amount of comfort for the troubled? Maybe there should be more riots after our sermons. I don't know. Paul says, if you are persecuted, it's an affirmation for the right reasons. It's an affirmation that you're following me. You're following Christ. And Paul also says following him as he follows Christ. And it also confirms that the other people persecuting you are heading towards perdition, it says. So persecution shows who you are and shows who they are. So rejoice, the Bible says elsewhere, when you're persecuted. Because great is your reward in heaven. So that's therefore. So we've spent about 20 minutes on one word. So I guarantee you it won't be that long for the rest. He says this, if there's any consolation in Christ, based on everything he's just said, if there's an ounce of consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, Paul's saying, can you scrounge together any comfort from his love based on what we've already talked about and what they've lived together through in their discipleship relationship? This is Paul and Timothy writing to the Philippians. He said, if there's any affection and mercy Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. So Paul's finding his joy. Check this out. Finding his joy in others fulfilling their spiritual destiny. Isn't that interesting? He says, make my joy complete by completing the mission that God's called you to do. That actually ties back to chapter 1-2 where Paul says... I'm convinced that the good work God started in you will be carried through to completion if you humbly stay the course and stay in your lane. So Paul's saying, make my joy complete. I'm actually living. My joy's dependent on whether someone else fulfills what God started in them through my ministry, and I want to help nurture it and see it across the finish line. He's saying, keep the same mindset that I have. A lot of people preach this text and they talk about unity. We're going to get to unity in just a second. But right now it's first uniformity and focus. Paul's saying, be like-minded. Look at life like I look at life. Focus on Christ and not on yourself. Focus on eternity and not on the here and now. Focus on his purposes today so that when that day comes, you're not going to be ashamed or surprised when you stand in front of God. Do you ever get a test that you weren't ready for in school? I, I've been to school for so long. I've done a master's degree and, and other advanced degrees and got out of school in my mid-30s. So every once in a while, I still have a nightmare about being back in school. And, and the nightmare is similar. It's, there's a test 
that's going to be happening. And I'm really concerned about my GPA because I link it to my future in my mind. And I'm getting an exam that I'm not prepared for. And I panic. A sister dream to that is there's a play that I'm in and I've forgotten all the lines. I think that comes from being a preacher up in front of people. I, I don't use notes and I don't want to forget what God's had me memorize. But on that day, Paul's saying, focus and live in a way that you won't be ashamed or afraid. You'll actually be excited for the test. Have you ever had one of those tryouts or a performance review or an update in your relationship with your spouse? And you're like, hey, things are actually going well. I look forward to the review. Paul's saying, we have seen the answers on the test. We have a professor that wants us to get it right. He doesn't pride himself in being obtuse and, and, and being closed about what he's going to have on the exam. He's shown us what it is. Let's stay focused on that. And therefore, we will have unity. If I'm shooting for a goal and I'm running hard after it, I'm also going to be running close with those that are also heading towards the same goal. When I do premarital counseling, you've probably heard this or seen this before. If you haven't, I'll talk with you afterwards and your marriage will get better. But if you have two people here and Christ is at the top of the triangle and they're both pursuing Christ and they're growing and they're focusing on that day and they're allowing Christ to transform them and make them into his image and use their gifts to glorify God, they're heading towards Christ. But in the process, they're getting closer and closer and closer together. Sometimes we can do unity for unity's sake and we're tripping over each other because we're sort of upset about how the other person's running or what they're doing. But if we're all focused on Christ, we're going to end up closer and closer and side by side because we're pursuing the same goal of a relationship with him. That's how it happens. So Paul's saying for those that live their lives so that our life on earth is fruitful, so that we're ready for that day. If you live that way, you will find others to be unified with. It might not be your family of origin, but God will give you a new family. We still respect and love all of our family members, but Jesus himself had to say, when you know, Mary interrupted one of his preaching engagements and said, you've gone too far. You're too radical. This is Mary who's like worshiped in the Catholic tradition and Mary who's definitely revered in, 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 in lots of legitimate ways, but she wasn't perfect because she showed up and she said, Jesus, shut up. Come home with us. And Jesus said, my mother and brothers are anyone. They say, hey, Jesus, your mother and brother are outside. Jesus said, my mother and brothers are anyone who hears God's word and obeys it. He said, I've got a, another family and I hope we're inviting our family of blood into the family of God. But sometimes God gives you a new family to be unified with. He says, make my joy complete so we can be like-minded and of one accord and one mindset. When Jesus was on earth, he had two miraculous catches of fish. The first one was when Peter was called into the ministry. The second one was after he had died. The disciples didn't understand all of his comments about raising from the dead. So Peter went back to fishing. It's like, I don't know what else to do. I'm just going to fish again. And Jesus shows up and Jesus reenacts the first catch of fish. And he says, Peter, or he didn't even use his name at that point. He just said, did you catch anything? Peter says, no. So he throws his net on the other side. Again, the carpenter's instructing the fishermen. And they pull in 153 different species of fish, it says at the end of the Gospel of John. It's a fascinating number. Do you know that Greek zoologists believed there were 153 different species of fish in the Mediterranean Sea? And so Jesus could very well have been showing us that this net of grace is going to catch all sorts of different types of people and they're going to be together in the same net 
It was actually a prophecy of the church because the first set of nets at the first catch, they broke. These show us that this crazy, miraculous kingdom of grace is strong enough to pull different people in together because we're all caught up and headed for the same net. And that's where we find unity because Jesus caught us and chose us. This is where I sound kind of Presbyterian in a Southern Baptist church, just for a second, but I'm balanced. Don't worry. But those fish weren't planning on being caught that day. But there was this great grip of grace that snatched them out from where they were to something else. I love baptism because people are going down, and if it works out well, they come back up. I baptize some football players, so sometimes I need help with a couple other guys if it's a lineman. But you're going down, and you're coming up into a brand new reality that you haven't ever seen before. There's a parable that says fish know there's no such thing as water until they're caught. We know there's no such thing because fish just spend time in water. Their uncles swim in water. Their aunts, their grandparents, they've always just swam in water. When they get caught and pulled into a new reality, they were swimming in their divided schools. All of a sudden, they're now one caught in a net of the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, if we're following after that humbly and we're letting Christ Pick our family humbly. We're letting Christ pick our associations, not sociology, not demographics. Not, don't let Mark Zuckerberg pick your friends. I'm serious. Because he's programming who you should hang with and who you shouldn't. And who you should listen to empathetically and who you shouldn't. And guess who owns Instagram? You think you're liberated, you're a millennial, you're on Instagram? Zuckerberg owns Instagram. Let Jesus pick your friends. Otherwise, you end up swimming in divided schools. The kingdom of God is made up of fish that wouldn't swim together if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus. We have to be humble enough to accept that we'll be divided on our own. The first catch of fish was teaching the disciples that they need to be humble enough to call for partners or else the fish, which clearly represent people, are going to get away and be lost because the nets were breaking. The second catch of fish is we have to be humble enough to let Jesus pick our family and our inner circle. And it'll surprise you who's in it. You might even have well-meaning Christian friends advise you not to have certain people in your circle. They'll be the same people that are surprised that certain group of people get into heaven. Who let the Methodists in? And the Democrats? We're all in the same neighborhood? I thought they were going to have a colony on the side. But we're all here worshiping the same. We're all headed to the same throne. Paul's saying, don't lose track of that. That's our journey. That's our destiny. And every tongue and tribe and nation will worship at his feet. We have to humbly accept that's our unavoidable destiny. So if your tribal loyalties mean more to you than your identity as a citizen of God's kingdom, you're going to be sorely disappointed forever in heaven. So get ready. We lay down our crowns. Our crowns are actually our history, our identity, our heritage. Am I made in the image of God uniquely? Yes. Does my background glorify God in a unique way when it's redeemed? Yes. But I ultimately lay that down because my eyes are on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. And for the joy set before him, Jesus went through the cross and suffered because he had me in his sights. And on Calvary, he was made fun of. He was spit on. He was stripped naked. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame so that he could get me back. Eternity without me was more painful to Jesus than going through the short-term suffering of the cross. Short-term suffering, long-term gain. The devil's offer, short-term pleasure, eternal pain. We got to pick. When that offer comes into your email, email, when that text message comes through, when that invitation comes through, be of like mind and pick humbly the one who can fulfill your soul. Here's the tough part about being human. Ready? We can't fulfill our own souls. We have to be humble enough to let someone else do that for us. We can't choose our associates properly. We have to be humble enough to allow someone else to do that for us. We can't spend our lives in ways that matter. We have to be humble enough to let someone else do that for us or we'll waste our lives. It's been said the stairway to heaven is how you hear about people getting there and you hear about the highway to hell. That could tell us something about anticipated traffic patterns. 
a lot of people will waste their lives. A lot of people will take the Instagram photo now and pain later. I'm working on raising my social media game, so I'm not trying to be either or here. But I'm saying, am I really living for the audience of one? Or am I living for the audience of my followers? I want people to follow me so that they follow Christ. That's what Paul said. And Paul didn't even have Instagram. Follow me as I follow Christ, he said. Ready for the rest of the sermon? So here's the last couple of verses. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness. In the Greek, this word is lowness of mind. Let others be esteemed as better than yourself. Our society is addicted to self-esteem. And it's easy because we've been beat down, we've been hurt, we've been made fun of, we've been left out, we haven't had the father we needed, haven't had the mother we needed. We all are born in sin and raised by sinners. It's tough being human. That's why I told you they spank you on the way in to make sure you'll fit in. It hurts. But we can be redeemed. God can repurpose your tears. He can rewrite your story. He can reconnect you with another family. He can change your family that you already have. But we have to esteem others better than ourselves, it says. Isn't that interesting? It's hard, it's hard to figure out humility right. Because on one hand, we get worm theology. I suck, God hates me, and I have nothing good in me. We have nothing that can save us. But God still made things in us that reflect his glory. And we can be redeemed and those can be maximized and our sin can be minimized. It's not about beating ourselves up, but humility is about knowing where our gifts come from and what they are for. Who gave you your gift of business? Who gave you your gift of worship? Who gave you your gift of writing or speaking or teaching? Who gave you your gift of relationships or of athletics or of art? It's from the master artist. And when I watch, when I walk through the Louvre in Paris, I can actually see some hints of the artist's life in the art that the artist has created. And the Bible actually says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we're his masterpiece. We're all unique. Michelangelo created the statue David. And, and the rumor is that somebody asked him, how did you come up with the statue of David? And he said, all I had to do was carve away. He started with a big rock. All I had to do was carve away everything in the rock that wasn't David. Isn't that kind of a great illustration of how God works on us? He's made me for a certain image and purpose and goal. And, and he's got, I've got to be humble enough because it hurts to have stuff chipped off of you. I grew up with that. Somebody else always told me that was important. That was very dear to me. I've got to let him chisel away at me so that the image of God in me can be clearly seen. He needs to chip away everything that's not Nate so that Nate is left. And hopefully at 45, I'm more like the Nate I'm supposed to be than at 35. Hopefully at 55, I'll be more like it. Can't wait till 2 billion and 45 because I'll be exactly who I was made to be forever. I hope you're looking forward to that, for real. Retirement, that's this long. I might get to travel more. Might get to check off my bucket list. Look forward to who you're going to be at 2 billion and 45. I'm not joking. Paul's saying that's the day we need to be looking for. Be humble enough to let him chip away at you. Here's the other wild thing. If you esteem others better than yourself, that sort of feels like it's counterproductive, doesn't it? A little bit risky. If I'm always deferring at work, I'm always deferring at church, I'm always deferring socially, deferring in my family, don't I have to stick up for myself or speak up for myself? That's if you are trusting in other people to elevate you. And we all do it. We all calculate. What should I do to get what I need? How do I reach this person? How many chips do I have in the bank with this person? How many have I spent? We're all calculators. Because we're all trusting someone else to elevate us. But the Bible says what? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and who will lift you up? He will. 
We're still talking about Paul, by the way. 2,021 years later, God humbled him and lifted him up. The soldier that was above him supervising him, I don't know his name, but God humbled Paul and lifted him up. The Bible says later in Philippians that Jesus, even though he was equal with God, considered it, esteemed it, not to hang on to that. He was still God when he became flesh, but he gave up all his privileges. He gave up all his position, all his authority. He traded a crown of gold for a crown of thorns and sweated under the same sun he put in the sky to get me back. That shows our value, right? The cross shows us that we're sinners beyond repair, but it also shows us that we were so valuable that he came for us. Saying someone's lost isn't an offensive thing, even though our culture thinks it is. Saying someone's lost is saying that I can't rest until I get them back. I miss them when they're gone. I notice their absence. I'm incomplete without them. And Jesus is asking us to be a part of the mission of seeking and saving the lost because Christ wants us all to be with him forever. It's his will that none should perish, but all come to repentance. Is that going to happen though? All will not be in heaven. Only those who humble themselves enough, like a little kid, to say, I need you to chip away at my life to be who I'm supposed to be. I need you to catch me from the school I'm swimming in, from my current associates, catch me up in something greater and make me a part of a family with a mission that loves me where I can trust that I'll be safe because I'm looking for Christ to elevate me. Everyone had rejected Joseph. His biggest advocate of his 12 brothers said, let's not kill him, let's just sell him as a slave and throw him in a well. You think you have a dysfunctional family. Joseph's family took the cake. His boss rejected him. His boss's wife hit on him and framed him. Everybody turned against him, but he wasn't worried to esteem others better than himself because he knew Christ would elevate him in due time. Humility doesn't mean we just say we stink. Humility means anything we have, we know it comes from God. You might think you're a self-made man or a self-made woman. Where did you get your intellect? Where did you get your strength and your hustle? Where did you get your set of relationships and opportunities in your network? Where did you get your gifts and skills that you put to work at the Monday through Friday? It all came from Jesus. Where did you check this out? This is important. If you're online and you only catch this, it's worth the sermon. Jesus Christ sees you and he will elevate you. If everyone else has forgotten you, he'll elevate you in due time. He will fulfill his purpose for you. Here, here it is, ready? The favor that you have from a boss or an employer or another supervisor or a partner or a friend, yes, it comes from your faithfulness in the relationship to a degree, but it's also a gift from God. He allowed you to be faithful, but he also gave you favor in their eyes. That's what it says. It says, God tested Joseph's character, Psalm 155, until the time to fulfill his dreams came about. And then Pharaoh sent for him. So if you're faithful, someone will find you. Isn't that cool? King David didn't even make tryouts when Samuel came by for the next king. Remember that? He wasn't even invited to audition. And Samuel sees the handsome guy, the strong guy, the, the guy that's probably really good at battle. And David said, or God said, I've rejected them. And then Samuel looks at Jesse and goes, do you have anybody else? Well, there's this ruddy shepherd guy. We don't really let him come around very often. And God says, that's the man. Because David was humble. David was a man after God's own heart. David was allowing God to elevate him in due time. If you're good, he will find you. Before David killed Goliath, do you know what he practiced on? He practiced on lions and bears in the wilderness when nobody was watching. Even though he got the assignment that sucked, the assignment that everyone made fun of, he got so good at it, it was preparing him to take down a giant one day. If you're faithful where he's put you, he will find you because he sees you and he elevates you. That's humility. And by the time Joseph got called up by Pharaoh, his character had been developed because he was a little cocky before. 
I got a Technicolor dream coat and you guys don't. There was a reason they threw him in the well. He needed his character to be developed. He needed to be mature. Yes, he was a dreamer, but he was immature. God will fulfill you and work on you and build your character so that your character is ready when your dreams are set to come true. How many leaders do we read about all the time who have the position and they've got the elevation, but their character can't keep them where their giftedness has taken them? I read about one of those right before I came to see you today. There's one every day if I want to read it. If you are waiting for elevation before you're letting God humbly shake your character, your elevation won't last long. And ultimately, my main elevation is not a stage I get here on earth. My main elevation that I'm auditioning for and interviewing for and being evaluated for is that day when I stand in front of Jesus Christ and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in the wilderness. You were faithful when I elevated you a little bit. But now I want you to be in charge of several cities. There are job descriptions in heaven. Did you know that? It's not all chubby babies with harps and togas. It's like a city that's worth living in, a job with a boss that's worth having, and a mission that goes on forever. That's what you're auditioning for. It's not about avoiding sin. It's about saying yes to Jesus. If I say yes to something, I'll say no to all the other temptations. When I find the original, those counterfeits aren't as attractive. When I find healthy food, the junk food doesn't fill me up anymore. But if I'm starving, junk food sounds really good. I got to say yes to the mission that Christ has for me and humbly trust that he has a mission for me. There's a lane for you. Do you believe it? And it might not be the institutional lane that is in your industry or in your field or in your workplace, but God's designed a you uniquely and specifically for a mission on earth. When David's life was summarized in Acts, it said he fulfilled God's mission for this generation and then he died. That's what I want on my tombstone. I ran in the lane that God had for me. It's a unique lane. Your lane's unique. God's had to like plow the lane and carve the lane and people made fun of me for making that lane and they told me it shouldn't work. But God in the lane for me, I had to humbly be deaf to the critics so that I could trust the Lord. Because I know it's not up to others to elevate me. Favor comes from him. I've got to be faithful. I've got to treat people right. That's not what I'm, I'm don't, don't misunderstand me. But ultimately the favor that someone else sees in me is something they're recognizing that God's put in me. That's why you want to hire someone because God's with them. That's why Pharaoh hired Joseph. He didn't know the right language, but he said, the spirit of the gods is, are in you. And Joseph's thinking, you're getting closer. There's, there's one. But it, what, what I interpreted didn't come from me. What you do well didn't come from you. It's on loan from God. Here's the last verse, and then we're done. Let each of you look out, not only for his or her own interests, but also for the interests of others. If you take care of others, people will also take care of you. That's not just some Tai Chi using someone else's momentum against you kind of thing. It's not about karma. I saw a funny bumper sticker. It said, my karma ran over your dogma. We can get kind of deep into this reciprocity. It's not about quid pro quo, but it's about if you really love people, God will bring you the community, and that net you're caught up in will have enough other people close enough to love you, even if they're different from you. And you'll be able to care for them just as you love yourself. Jesus said, Jesus took this whole book and boiled it down to two things. That's what a great teacher does. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can show you how sin happens by screwing up on that one. And then the other one, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Some of us hate ourselves, so we love our neighbor as ourselves. Because we don't know what love is. We pay forward whatever we've inherited or received or how we've been treated. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about learning to love yourself by paying attention to how God loves you and then loving your neighbor that way. It's about learning to care for others. I can't be complete if everything's good for my family and my house and my four walls and my block with my bank account and my kids and my job security and my LinkedIn profile. That can't be my standard of things being well. Things have to be well for me when my neighbor's okay. 
My neighbor who's different than me. My neighbor who swam in a different school than me before we got caught in Christ. I've got to love them and care for them the way I love and care for myself. And their interests have to be my interest. So if my neighbor's kid's having trouble at school, that's suddenly my problem. We have to have boundaries in ministry and relationships. Everybody's problem's not your problem. But most people err on the side of saying, if I can just have the four walls of my life good, check the box, I'm going to bed happy tonight. So I'm preaching to the other group right now. I'll have a pastor support group later after this sermon, and we'll talk about boundaries and giving away too much of ourselves. But for now, Paul says life and joy comes from looking at others and caring for their needs in addition to your own. Healthy people take care of themselves so they know what that looks like so that they're instructed properly to take care of others. Healthy people let God bless them so that they can be a blessing to others. That's the Abrahamic blessing. The Abrahamic blessing is acted out every time you step on an airplane. It says, in the event of a decrease in cabin pressure, masks will fall down. You've heard this, right? And if you're sitting next to a child or anyone acting like a child, you're supposed to take the mask and do what? Put it on yourself first. And I was actually on a plane last week, and because of COVID, they said, take off your other mask first and put on this one. Thanks. That was helpful. They think we're idiots. Take off your COVID mask and then breathe so that you don't pass out. Because if I pass out because I'm helping everybody else around me, I haven't allowed the love of God and the life and the breath of God inside of me enough so that I'm strong enough to help someone else. And if I'm not passing out, I can actually help four or five people. Otherwise, I might help one person, then I go down. And that's why we have burnout in ministry. I want to stay in the game long so I can help as many people on as many aisles on as many rows as I can because the breath of God is in me. So if I consider my own needs, I can also consider the needs of others. See, there's always balance in the scriptures. If you're listening to God, he's always speaking to you in stereo, I heard one theologian say. This is care for your own needs and your needs for others. Some people sin by caring their own needs in ways that are inconsiderate for the needs of others. We need to meet our own needs in ways that consider the needs of others. And then this big, crazy net of all the different fish called church, wrapped up in the grace of Christ, will be able to sail to the destination that God has for us. And that's his kingdom reign that comes on that day when he parts the skies and the trumpets blow and he comes down and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus is Lord. May you believe in your heart that God sees you when you sin, but also when you're faithful. May you see that God has a lane uniquely created and carved out for you. He's carving out your lane just as he's carving out you. There was a mission for David and his generation, and that's why God carved to David. There's a mission for you in your neighborhood. That's why God carved to you. There's a mission for you and your family. There's a mission for your online community. There's a mission for God, and he's got a lane for you just as he's got a chisel taking anything off of you and off of me that doesn't match who you really are. And only he knows because he's the artist. The devil wants us to step away from the refinement process. The devil wants us to step away from people in the church that are different than us. Humility says it hurts, but I'm here for a reason. Humility says these people, I, I wouldn't have picked them, but that didn't work out very well for me last time. Some of the heartache in my life is because my chooser is broken. I need someone else to choose for me. The one who knew me and made me, that's the one. I want to humbly let choose my associates. He'll send you to people you didn't expect. He'll send you on missions you didn't dream you were capable of. David was the poor shepherd boy that didn't make tryouts and he became king of Israel because God elevated him. There wasn't anyone else to esteem out in the wilderness. The only person to see him was God and that was enough. Trust him with your life. Trust him with your lane. Trust him with your heart. His plans for you are not to harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. Ultimately, he settles accounts in eternity. You will never have anything unsettled with God forever. And he'll give you enough of a preview of that on earth 
to be able to accomplish everything that you're supposed to be about that's eternal in value. Do you trust that? That's humility. We know why we got what we got. We know who it came from and what it's for. If you're willing tonight to let God keep working on you, if you're a believer in Christ and you're not home, he's still working on you. Paul says the good work he began in us will be carried on until that day. He's going to be working on us. But as you get more and more like the person you're supposed to be, that gets exciting because you reflect God's glory more. You're in the lane more. You're freed up from sin more. You can run the race faster. There's joy that comes from staying humbly in the lane and on the journey that God has for you. And the people alongside of you, if they're following Christ, they're going to get closer to you as well. Paul says this. He says, he pressed on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of him. I'm landing the plane. The wheels are coming down. You can put your mask back. We're almost done. But Paul says he goes after the calling that he has on his life just as he went after the church that he persecuted. The same word in the Greek is persecute. This is chapter three of Philippians. It's a preview of what's to come. This is like after the Marvel credits. They have like one more scene. This is it and then I'm done. Paul says that he persecutes after the calling God has for him just as aggressively as he chased down and relentlessly went after Christians before his conversion. The same intensity, the same pursuit was still there, but the purpose got flipped and he started building churches. And instead of killing Christians, he started making more. And he said, I want to press on to take hold of everything that God has for me until that day. That's my question for you tonight. If you want to take a hold and press on to take hold of everything that God has for you this day, so you're ready for that day, I want you to stand up so I can pray for you. And the worship team's going to come back up, but I just want to have a moment of prayer. This is saying, I'm not done yet. God's not done with me yet. I'm going to forget what's behind my failures, my sins, my critics, my haters, my mistakes, my shame, and I'm going to press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. The stuff behind me is gone. The stuff in front of me is with me forever. My true and new reality, my new normal is forever. I want to take hold of what Christ has for me, and I'm humbly going to admit that that's better than anything else I could do for myself. In fact, the only thing we can do for ourselves is earn eternal damnation apart from Christ. With Christ, we can earn rewards, but we don't make our way to heaven. He does that. And then we get to be faithful to live out that masterpiece calling that he made us to fulfill. Let's pray together as we get ready to go to the next part of our worship service. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would transform us during this time in Philippians. Lord, we don't want to be the same and just go through the motions at church. We want to be humble and say we need help beyond ourselves and we trust that that's you. That there's a mission. Our desire to make our lives count comes from you. Our desire to have life to the fullest comes from you. We have to pursue it in your way and your timing with your people. But if we stay the course, we'll find life to the fullest now and forever. For my brothers and sisters standing, God, carve out in me and anybody else here anything that doesn't reflect who you've made us to be. Even if it's something dear to us, maybe it was something for a season that was supposed to be there, but now it's gone. There might be a relationship for a season, but now it's gone. Some things might be scaffolding that were used for a building that's going to last. Other things are just wrong and need to be chipped away. We humbly submit to you. You are the artist. We're the masterpiece. Make us accordingly. And may my life and may the lives of my brothers and sisters here be such that when people see them at work, see them doing what they've been called to do, see them with talent on loan from God, that they would point to you and know who it came from and what it's for. And may they see the artist in the masterpiece. And may more people want to know what that artist could do if he started working on their own lives. Lord, we love you. Lord, we praise you. We appraise you, Lord. The word esteem says appraise. Talk about value. When we go to a jewelry store, we take a ring, we have it appraised. And we're going to praise in a minute and we're going to esteem and appraise you and say you are more valuable than everything else. 
It's not even close. There's no second that matters. You're worth more than everything else because you are the one that fulfills our soul. You're the one that brings us community. You're the one that completes our story. You're the one that started our lives. You're the one that judges our lives. And you are the one who gives us life in Christ. So we esteem you. And because you're esteemed, you've somehow decided that we're valuable, Lord. So we accept your appraisal of us. And we pray that we would help others see without Christ how horrible it is and with Christ how beautiful it is to be appraised as a child of God, redeemed for all time. We humble ourselves to receive your life for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. Contact us or learn more at our website, newvision.city. See you next time. Thank you.